I hope that you'll see as we go in Psalm 106 today, just the, the neat way that the Spirit of God through the song selections this morning ties everything together. Uh, you'll maybe notice if you've got my notes in front of you that the title is uh, Prone to Wander. That's a phrase from the song we just sang, Come Thou Fout. And I won't ask you to raise your hand. I'll just probably assume, because if you're anything like me, I can assume accurately on this, that's a good description of you. I'm prone to wonder, right? Um, back on March 7th, we looked at Psalm 105 together. So if you're in 106, you can just kind of glance back. Uh, one of the major thrusts of Psalm 105 is that we are commanded to remember Okay, so just like the, the rocks that Jason was talking with the kids about, they were commanded to remember. Psalm 105 and 106 are both historical psalms in that they focus on a lot of the ways that the Lord delivered them out of bondage, out of uh, danger, um, into the promised land. Psalm 105, if you want to glance back at verse 45 for just a moment, this, this verse reminds us that God brought His people out of Egypt through the desert and into the promised land, and he did it all for a specific purpose. So look at verse 45. That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. So, God delivered his people for that purpose, to keep his statutes and observe his laws. And in that sermon from March 7th, I said, I made the point that perspective matters. That's why history is a good thing for us to know. Actual history that stuff that that really happened, okay? Not stuff that we're trying to rewrite, but stuff that actually happened. And if we fail to remember actual real history, then we're going to, number one, probably be doomed to repeat those same problems. And number two, we're not going to be able to effectively teach and train the next generations to follow God properly. And so it is super important that we have historical psalms that jog our memory, as Jason said. So Psalm 105 is similar to Psalm 106, but there's some contrast I just want to point out before we read Psalm 106. Psalm 105 celebrates how God delivered his people, how he provided for them, and how he was faithful for them. Psalm 106 remembers similar things, but from the flip side perspective of it. Psalm 106 remembers how Israel rebelled, how they grumbled and turned away from God. So there's still celebration in this, in this chapter. There's still remembrance. There's still hope that we can find. But the darkness of Israel, the Israelites' sin was that backdrop that illuminates God's mercy that much brighter. And that's the, that's the feeling of Psalm 106. Charles Spurgeon said, Since man ceases not to be sinful, it's a great blessing that Jehovah ceases not to be merciful. Psalm 105, verse 5 says, Remember the wondrous works that he has done. It was calling Israel's memory back to everything that God had done. Verse 7 of Psalm 106 says, They did not consider his wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of his steadfast love. So what they were being called to do, chapter 106 says, they didn't get it. They missed the mark. 
So Psalm 105 magnifies God's goodness, but Psalm 106 that we're going to look at today reveals man's sinfulness. They both have the same point to give thanks to God, to praise the Lord, but they come at it from different perspectives. Now, I I think that uh, the different perspectives that they come from just give us two different ways and reasons for doing the same thing, for praising God. One praises God for his gifts and his blessings to his chosen people of Israel, and one praises God for his great mercy on an often rebellious and ungrateful people. So, we're going to split this chapter, Psalm 106, into two sermons. So don't look at all, however many verses, 40, 48 verses. We're not going to try to tackle all of that today. We're only going to get through verse 23. But I want to split it up, not just because it's long, but also because there's some situations that the author references that it's, it's good to stop at. So I want to read chapter 106, verses 1 through 23 together, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, they did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet you saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his power, his mighty power. Verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. Verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Let's pray. Lord, you're so gracious in your word, and even in just reading through this, we see Not just a type of Christ, Lord, but we see beauty and forgiveness. Abundance of steadfast love. And we know, Lord, that if you treated your people in Old Testament times this way, you still treat your people this way today. And it's good that you do, because our hearts 
are no different than theirs. And so as we look at this chapter together, God, it's my hope and my prayer that you would remove blinders, remove jadedness, remove walls that have been built up. Maybe we're upset and angry with you. Maybe we don't understand and we're confused and we're frustrated. Um, Lord, maybe we just are indifferent today. Maybe we've come because we were forced to or because we felt obligated and we don't really want to be here. Lord, you can change all of that in an instant. And then I pray through your word, Lord, that you would you would change our hearts because that's what we need. Move in us today as your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let me ask you guys a question. If you need to say something hard to someone that you care about, how do you usually do that? Do you usually just say, hey, I need to talk to you for a second, and then just lay right into it? A lot of times, I think, we, we kind of start off easy, right? Um, here's an example, and maybe this is not a great example, but you've heard people say, you know I love you, right? Okay, so when you hear that, you, you kind of can guess what's coming. It's probably not great. Um, it's not hard to guess what's coming after that. The hard stuff is usually necessary for us to communicate, um, but reviewing the good stuff first reestablishes the relationship, the depth of your love for them. And so while in, in, in jest we might say, hey, you know I love you, right? But in, in reality, that, that's what we want to communicate. That's what we want to say. It's telling, reaffirming our love for someone grounds the relationship before maybe the hard stuff so that when you share the hard stuff, it doesn't just wreck your relationship with them. Well, I, I think verses 1 through 5 of chapter 106 kind of do that in this psalm. So they focus, these verses focus on praising and thanking God for two main reasons. And you can see them there in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. So thanking God for His goodness. And give thanks to the Lord. Why? For His steadfast love endures forever. His mercy endureth forever. So the first five verses, that's kind of the, the pinnacle of them. Praise God for His mercy and His love. For His goodness that never ends. It's steadfast. It's, never, it's, it's always happening so before we get to some of these hard situations that the author here reminds us of, he's grounding the relationship in God's steadfast love and endless goodness. And it's good that he does that. Verse 2, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? Guys, when we reflect on our own brokenness, when we reflect and think about our own sin, well, it's still right, even in that, to remember and recognize God for who He is and praise Him for it. Even though we have not kept His commands as we ought to, it's still a good thing that we pursue praise. Even though in this life we're not going to get it right. Even the praise that we offer, our hearts are kind of divided. Even as we're singing this morning, maybe we're thinking about what we're doing this afternoon or this week, and our hearts are not totally engaged and in it. Even in our sometimes half-hearted worship, it's, it's better than no worship at all. And even though it may not be what we want it to be, there's nothing that we should put more energy and effort into in this life than praise. 
then, and I don't just mean singing. I mean living a life of praise. I mean speaking that and training the next generation and that being praise to the Lord. And I think verse 3 tells us that a lifestyle of praise goes hand in hand with something. Doing righteousness. Being righteous. Pursuing godliness. Being holy. He says, blessed are those who observe justice. Who practice it. Who love it. And he says, blessed are those who do righteousness at all times. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand for this again, because I already know the answer. Have you done righteousness at all times? No. Of course not. Now, bless, you, you would be blessed if you, if you would. Now, I've heard people say, and I've even cracked the joke myself, after doing something nice for somebody, you kind of dust your hands off and you're like, all right, I did my good deed for the week. Right? That's a joke. I get it. We, we make that sometimes. But that can't really be the attitude of a believer. And I'm afraid it's crept into maybe the church and some, some of our thinking. The good, only good you do in the week, the only time you pursue righteousness is not on Sunday morning when you're surrounded by people who are like-minded. We should do it then, but that can't be the only time we do it. it we pursue justice and righteousness and love it at all times. Now, that's something you and I can't do in our own power because we've been called to do that in our darkness as we talked about last week in our suffering when it's difficult only the power of God in us can cause us to praise and to seek and do righteousness at all times now it's interesting to me that in verse 5 of chapter 105 so if you just kind of flip back there verse 5 of 105 tells the people, the author of this is saying, remember, remember the wondrous works that he has done. And now flip back to chapter 106, verse 4, and the author here is asking God to remember. And if you look, he says, remember me. Does that two-word phrase ring any bells from the New Testament? That's the exact phrase that the thief on the cross said to Jesus. Remember me. I think those phrases are used pretty similarly. Now, the author of this was not nailed to a cross like the thief next to Jesus, but his heart was still the same. Lord, I recognize my role in this problem. Remember me. Save me. In reality, if anything good comes in my life, guys, if, if anything good comes about in your life, it's because God has remembered you. He's not forgotten. The author here is pleading with God to remember, to remember him, to remember his promise. And guess what? God does. God remembers. I think the author here, and it's confirmed in verse 6, I think he's acknowledging his part in this problem. Now, when he's asking God to remember him, he doesn't want to just remember, or God to remember him so that his life is easier. He doesn't say, Lord, remember me so that I don't have to work so hard. He says, remember me, so, verse 5, so that he can observe God's faithfulness to his people, so that he can remember. God, remember me so I can remember what I need to remember. He's asking God to remember him so that he can rejoice with his people in gladness and glory in the Lord's inheritance and be happy with his people. What is God's inheritance? God's people. They were chosen. They were cared for as his own inheritance, an inheritance that he has given to Jesus. 
So these, these people, God's people, they glory not in themselves. They don't boast in their own strength, in their own wisdom, in what they have, in their own riches, or in their own righteousness at all. Instead, they boast in Christ and in His righteousness. And the psalmist, the writer of 106, he wants to join with them in that. Remember me so that I can join with the people. That What a blessed inheritance it is to be able to join with the body of Christ and sing. And what we are doing here is just a taste, a foretaste of what we get to do in heaven for eternity. To praise our Father, who's worthy of it, forever. That's the inheritance that the Lord has. So, verses 1 through 5, they reflect with joy on who God is. How He has come through for Israel in the past, and now how He continues to care for them, and to bless them. And then... Verses 6 through 43, so almost the whole rest of the chapter, is a recounting of a bunch of situations in Jewish history that illustrate that these painful truths that God's chosen people, maybe like us today, are prone to wander. And not just literally in the desert for years and years, but prone to wander in their heart. They're prone to slip up. They're prone to miss the mark. They're prone to fail. They're prone to fall. And by my count, through those verses, I count eight instances in Jewish history where the sinfulness of the people was just really on display. And so I want to, I'm going to brief them, I'm going to list them briefly, and then we're going to look at the first four today and then the next four next week. So I've got those in your notes. Uh, divided up by verses and then the corresponding situation in Jewish history. So verses 6 through 13, the author talks about the Red Sea, and we find that in Exodus 14. Verses 14 through 15 are the craving and the plague from Numbers 11. Number 3, verses 16 through 18 is jealousy, fire, and more plague from Numbers 16. And then number 4, verses 19 through 23, the golden calf from Exodus 32. We'll save the rest of them for next week. You can just kind of glance through them and see. All of these accounts um, I listed here for you so that you can have notes of them when you review this this week. Hopefully that's something you're able to do. And then if you're thinking about next time we get together and worship, you can be prepared with where to go. Because honestly, some of these stories that we're going to get into even today may be a little foreign to you. Now, the Red Sea... The golden calf, you guys probably heard those before. But the plagues, the burning, that, that may be less familiar. So, obviously, what he lists, these eight things, four that we'll talk about today, these aren't the only times that Israel rebelled. The Old Testament is full of that. The book of Judges is full of that. Okay, but these are just kind of a... Um, a case study. These are kind of case studies for things that illustrate the two things that we already started off with. Illustrate God's goodness from verse 1 and illustrate God's mercy as well. His loving kindness. So, verses 6 through 13, the Red Sea. If you want to flip back to Exodus 14, you are welcome to to just kind of verify what I'm saying. Um, Verse 6 in Chapter 106 of Psalm is the transition from the opening verses of praise to the reasons why 
praise is appropriate. It's a verse that I will quote several times today. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Now, this isn't in my notes, but it just struck me as I was reading that again. Um, Do you see any kind of excuse here for why they sinned? Do you see any kind of reasons listed like, well, we sinned, right, we did, but it was because, fill in the blank. I mean, if maybe if we were writing something like this, we would do that. That's a lot of human nature, but the inspired Word of God, there's no excuses here. It's just plain truth. We've sinned. Our fathers have sinned. We've messed up. Yeah, they've messed up. And for people who sin continually, right, he says both we and our fathers have sinned. We've done wickedness, iniquity. For people who sin continually, praise is a proper response for God's people, for seeing His mercy. That's right. Praise is. And His mercy is certainly on display when the Israelites come to the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. If you remember that story, they had been delivered from Egypt. They were out in the desert. They had no clue where they were going. There was a pillar of fire to lead them at night, a pillar of smoke to lead them during the day. And Pharaoh, I don't know if you'd say comes to his senses, but he starts to think better of letting his whole workforce go. And he starts chasing them down. And he pins them in between the Red Sea and his gigantic army. Pharaoh with them, his whole army. Now, verse 7 says of Psalm 106, that they don't remember God or His wondrous works or remember the abundance of His steadfast love when delivering them out of Egypt. But instead, what was the thing that they did by the Red Sea? They rebelled. We're just calling it for what it is. They rebelled. Okay. If you're in Exodus 14, read verses 10-12 through 12 with me. Here's what they said when they saw Pharaoh and his army chasing them. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes... And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Okay? Do you see why God called this rebellion by the Red Sea? Here, here's, here's why I think it's called rebellion. The people of Israel preferred fake and false security over the unknowns of actual true freedom. You see what I'm saying? They had security in Egypt. They had homes. They had food. And they wanted to go back there in slavery instead of following the Lord into some unknown areas. What a backwards society it is when dependence on someone else who doesn't actually care for you seems better than working hard and trusting the Lord. And I'll let you read into that what you want. Following God into the unknown is safer than remaining in bondage to comfortable indifference. 
And we see that here in the Israelites. Now, if we fail to remember God's mercy and goodness in our lives, guys, rebellion is waiting just around the corner. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, it says God is talking to Cain, and he says, sin, iniquity, wickedness is crouching just behind the door. It's waiting for a little foothold to get in there so that it can fling it open and pounce. It's crouching just behind the door. Instead of just allowing that to happen, what should we do? We're supposed to resist sin. We're supposed to flee from unrighteousness. In fact, we've already heard this morning, do righteousness at all times. (laughs) That's the solution. Now, we can't overlook verse 8 in this. It's a pretty important verse here. In fact, I would say this is one of the most, one of the two most significant verses in this whole psalm, maybe even in all of the Old Testament. Now, we're going to look at the second one, the second most significant verse in this psalm next week in verse 44, but this one in verse 8, it says, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God's glory Guys, his name's sake, as it's said here, it's at the center of who God is. God's glory is at the center of his very character. Listen to Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, this is the Lord speaking, for my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God refines his people one way or another. And his reputation, his name, that's what's on the line, guys. When we fail, when we fall, when we're prone to wonder, it's not just a reflection of the deficiencies in our character. It's a reflection of how we don't understand God for who He is. And it's a poor reflection of Him in our lives. Guys, God will not, we just read it, God will not allow His name to be defamed, profaned. Neither should we. We shouldn't stand for it. What you say and how you live ought to consecrate the name of Christ, not desecrate it. Our words should speak life and truth about God, not lies about God. In fact, our whole daily walk should reflect a changed life, shouldn't reflect or perpetuate hypocrisy that we see so prevalent. So God's glory, His namesake, is at the center of His own character. It's also at the center of His purpose for all of mankind. For all of humanity. Listen again to Isaiah in chapter 43, verses 5 through 7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I'll say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So get this. If you are alive and breathing, and you are, you were made with a singular purpose, to glorify God. That's why we're made. And I know that young people especially, and even a lot of adults, 
at times, struggle with this understanding of purpose. Why am I here? What do I have to do in this life? If we understand it biblically, the purpose God has given every person is to reflect and glorify Him. We were made in His image to glorify Him. His glory, that's why we were made. And Psalm 19, which was our theme verse for VBS a few weeks ago, helps us understand that not only is God's glory at the center of His character and all of humanity, but it's at the center of all of creation. The bugs and the trees. Everything, including mankind. If you look back at Exodus 14, verses 17 and 18, you actually see this same thought applied. God is speaking. He says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. Talking about into the Red Sea. And then God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The, the gods of Egypt were not the one true God. God had made that pretty clear in the ten plagues leading up to their exile. But he was making it crystal clear here. Egypt, think about Egypt. Egypt was the kind of the worldwide powerhouse at the time. Right? The biggest army, the most wealth, anything they wanted, basically they could do for centuries. No one dared to come against them. No one ruled over them. Nobody defeated them until God did. In just a series of a few short days, God defeated biggest, most powerful nation in the world. But the Egyptians, I'm sorry, the Israelites saw the Egyptian army coming, the biggest army in the world, and they feared. And they started to grumble and they rebelled. They saw, though, the miracles that God had done in Egypt leading up to that point, and it should have made a difference in how they responded here, and it didn't. So what's the point of this all? What's the point of bringing up this story from Israel, Israel's history? What's the point of the miracles in Egypt? What's the point of the deliverance of the, at the Red Sea? So that the Lord might receive glory and honor. So that He might be seen as the one true God. That He might, as Psalm 106 verse 8 says, that He might make His mighty power known. God did it. He miraculously saved his people and they believed his words and they sang his praise and it all looked great. If you look, if you end in verse 12 there, it's like, oh, this is going to be good. They remembered. They're singing his praise. And then verse 13 starts and it says, but they soon forgot. And it sounds like the book of Judges. And it says every couple of chapters and they, again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it leads us to verse... Uh, verses 14 and 15, which is story number two on the list, the craving and the plague from Numbers 11. You can turn there if you'd like. In that chapter, we see Moses is complaining that all of this is too much to bear on his own. And, and really, he was right. Uh, that was preceded by the people of Israel complaining again. And he heard this and he was like, God, I can't deal with this. I can't handle these people. You need to give me some help. And God did. 75 elders that were put in place. Uh, but Moses was complaining about his, about leadership. Uh, the people complained against the Lord for their, as the text says, misfortunes. 
Even though they were receiving manna, bread from heaven, every day, they complained about their misfortunes. They wanted something else. They were unsatisfied with what the Lord was giving them. And so what did they ask for? Meat. They asked for meat. They said, we want something besides this manna. And and they said, uh, I don't think I have it, it listed here as the verse, but in Numbers 11, they, they, they start thinking about all the great food from Egypt. When they're in bondage, remember, and they start thinking, man, think about, they had garlic there, and they had onions there, and they had leeks and cucumbers and melon, and, and they had fish. They wanted fish. And, and it even says, they said, and it was all free in exchange for slavery and bondage for you and your children for 400 years. But it was free. Now, all we have is this stinking manna to look at and eat. God, we want some meat. Give us some meat. Moses, make it happen. So Moses is upset. He doesn't know what to do. He kind of throws throws his hands up in the air. Well, guess what God does? God gives them meat. He sends quail and more quail and more quail. So much so that they had enough, not just to last for a day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days. They had enough to last for a month. And so they began to eat, specifically these people who were desiring it and demanding it. And they started to eat this quail. And they ate this quail. And they were eating this quail. And then it says in verse 33, while the the meat was still between their teeth, while they're gorging themselves on this food that they've demanded, a plague was sent among the people who, had, who were wicked and demanded these things of God. And they buried them. They died. And they buried them in the place called Kibroth Hatava, which literally means graves of craving. Psalm 106, verse 6, Our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Rebellion by the Red Sea does not please God. Neither does being dissatisfied or demanding of God. Leads us to the next story in verse 16 through 18 of Psalm 106. Jealousy, fire, and plague. That's from Numbers 16. Now, I'm not able to spend a ton of time on each text from these Old Testament passages. I would encourage you to go back and read the fullness of the stories to get the better and best understanding of these things, Um, especially if these stories are new to you, like this one may be. Go back and read Numbers 16 and the surrounding chapters to get a full explanation of it. But just to summarize it, uh, there were three guys that were pretty important here. Their names were Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and... They got 250 other well-known Israelite men to go against Aaron and Moses. And what they said was, why are you guys putting yourself up as princes above all of us? We're all considered holy. We should all be able to do what God tells you to do. And they were jealous of what God had done for Moses and Aaron with They had forgotten, remember, that Moses and Aaron, especially Moses, didn't even want the job to begin with. He didn't ask for this. God called him out and equipped him to do it. 
They forgot that. They were upset with him. They were upset with Aaron for being the high priest. That's why in Psalm 106 it uses the term his holy one. That's what he means. Aaron is the high priest. They were mad that they were getting to do things that were special in God's sight. They wanted their 15 minutes of fame. They wanted the limelight and their time to shine. And so Moses challenges them. He says, fine. You want to make this a thing? Let's make it a thing. You go home and get your censers, light them on fire, and bring them tomorrow. And then we'll see whose God's hand is on. Okay? So censers were like vessels for offering incense, fire, which was, in fact, the priest's job, not other people's. So the next day, they did these things, and God made it crystal clear who his chosen people were. Moses and Aaron. And in the process, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their families and everything that they owned and everything around them. And then, when that was finished, the fire that these 250 other men had lit in rebellion against God's people ended up burning them all to death. Tragedy. This was a lesson from God about who His anointed people would be, His chosen people would be. This was a hard lesson to be learned, that's for sure. But if you saw this, just put yourself as a run-of-the-mill Israelite in this story. You saw the earth, and we don't exactly know what this means, but we're just going to take it for what it says. If you saw the earth open up and swallow people, and fire burn rebellious people, do you you think you would get it? Do you think that you would recognize that you probably ought to do things God's way if it's going to go well for you? Well, you can imagine what's coming next. The people didn't get it. They're mad. If you look there in number 16, uh, they come out the next morning and they're angry again with Moses because those people died. And God says, I've had enough. He says, Moses, get away from these people. Go out from the midst of this congregation because they're going to die. I'm going to consume them all. I've had enough. And Moses... Uh, and Aaron, with some quick thinking, intercede for the people, the very people who were just rebelling against them, I might add, and they were not all killed by the plague. There were a lot of people that were killed. If I remember, 14,000 plus people were killed in this situation. That's not counting Korah and Dathan and Abiram and the 250 people and just tragedy. Psalm 106, verse 6, Our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Rebellion and making demands of God does not please Him and neither does trying to control Him. And that's what these guys wanted. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be like Moses and Aaron because they wanted, they thought they could control God and they can't. The last situation we'll look at this morning is verses 19 through 23. This is the golden calf. This is probably the most familiar story on this list so far. And I, I'm just going to recap it by reading verses 19 through 23 again. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. 
They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. I want to note verses 20 and 21 here. Look at verse 20. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. This is, a, this is a, such a sad condemnation of the people. What a sad revelation of who they really are. The people who'd seen with their own eyes God deliver them miraculously from Egypt, save them from the greatest army in the world at the Red Sea. They walked across this Red Sea, walls of water on both sides, as if it was the desert. Their carts didn't get stuck in there, guys, because the water, because it was muddy. It was dry ground that they could get across easily. They'd seen all of this. He'd given them water in the wilderness and provided food for them time and time again. And they willingly and quickly and easily put their faith in a goofy statue that they made. And it's a statue of an animal that's so lowly that it eats from the ground. It eats grass. The gold that the Egyptians had given them when they were leaving Egypt, which could have been used in a lot of ways, could have been used for part of building the tabernacle and different things, they foolishly, willingly gave up to worship that instead of the one true God. They foolishly thought that this goofy idol could save them. And it was ridiculous. And you know what? It says that they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. This sounds an awful lot like Romans 1. Chapter, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Israelites saw it all happen, right? They had access to the Lord who had done it, but their foolish hearts were darkened and they willingly exchanged truth for lies. We can look at all of this, and we're tempted, I'm sure, to look at all of this and plainly see how foolish and just downright ridiculous it was for them to do this. But we do the same thing. You're not making golden calves out of your jewelry at home. I don't think that. Okay? But we do the same thing in our heart. When I, when I let fear propel me to trust in something besides a faithful God, I exchange truth for a lie. When I give in and I feed the lust in my heart instead of killing the lust. I exchange the truth of God for a lie. When I think that I can fix it, that I don't need any help to make things right or to make myself right, I exchange the truth of God for a lie. And I don't see how ridiculous it is in the moment. But it is ridiculous. Friends, it's ridiculous for us to think that we can be in God's place. Or that we don't need His help. In Psalm 106, verses 20 and 21, they tie it all back to forgetfulness and unbelief and idol worship. 
The people had forgotten everything that God had done. How He had saved them. So we have to ask, have, have we forgotten it too? Have you forgotten it? Have you forgotten everything that God has done in your life? I'm not suggesting that your life has been perfect. But I am suggesting that God has been faithful. And that's what we need to remember. Have we forgotten that God has saved us from sin as His people? That that it no longer has dominion over us and that we are now free as His people to live a life of righteousness as unto the Lord? Have we forgotten? Now verse 23 of Psalm 106 is, is just a beautiful way to end our time together and we are ending. But look at the description of Moses and what he did on behalf of his people. This is so neat. Look at how Moses is described. Uh, his chosen one, God's chosen one, says that Moses stood in the breach, he stood in the gap, and it says that Moses turned away God's wrath from destroying the people. He stood in the gap, he interceded for the people, he saved them from the wrath of God. You see where I'm going with this? I hope so. This is absolutely a type of Jesus Christ here. There's no doubt that these things are shadows of what was to come with Christ. But you know what happened? Moses died. Moses, he didn't even see the promised land. Moses died. His ministry was necessary, but ultimately it was insufficient and incomplete because he was just a man. Jesus now stands in the gap. He intercedes for His people and He saves them from the wrath of God. But His ministry is not incomplete. His ministry was completely sufficient because He never dies. He was put to death, but He raised three days later and He has defeated death. And He has defeated the grave. And so He's able to stand in between us and God, a sinful people and a righteous God, and be the propitiation for sin that we need to be saved. His ministry is complete because He was more than just a man. He was God made flesh who dwelt among us and who willingly and joyfully went to the cross for the sins of every person who puts their faith in Him. Believing in Him, trusting in Him, is the only way for a person to be saved. Don't think, as we look back on those stories from Israel's history today, don't think that rebellion or making demands of God or trying to control God will work. They won't. It won't get you what you think you want. It gets you pain and separation from God, and a hard life without hope. Don't forget all that God has done. Don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. Don't exchange the truth of God for an idol that you set up in your heart and life that eats grass and is ridiculous. Jesus Christ stands in the gap and absorbs the wrath of God for sin, for all those who put their total faith in Him. And guess what? He'll do it for you today, if you believe. Let's pray. God, thank You for this picture of Christ 
today. My heart has been stirred with gratefulness and praise because of this this week, Lord. What a beautiful picture that we see. Moses interceding for the people, Lord. It was necessary. If that hadn't happened, you would have consumed them in an instant, Lord. But Jesus Christ stands in between us and your wrath. And it's righteous, Lord. We're deserving of your wrath because we have sinned. Our fathers have sinned and so have we. We're just like the Israelites in this way. But Christ now stands in the gap and says, Thank you, Jesus, for standing in the gap for us. For making a way where there was no way before. We could never make a way on our own because the best thing we could come up with is making an idol out of gold, of an animal that eats grass. It's the best we could do, Lord. We need you. It's required that we trust you to be saved. And so, Lord, I pray if there's any here this morning that have not put their faith in you, that they would see that Jesus stands ready to take the wrath that they deserve on him and stand in the gap and intercede for them now as your, as your people, as your chosen ones. Lord, but that happens not just because we were born, Lord, but because we were reborn. We are born again by faith into Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that those who don't know you today would be reborn into Jesus by your grace for your glory, Lord. Do that work in us. And if, Lord, if we have been saved, God, help us not to forget. Help us to remember the truth of who you are and your goodness and mercy and love. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.